This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Good to see you. You too. Uh, I'd ask you a question about the weather, but you're a climatologist. And I am. Don't know I don't know. About the weather. I, I thought on the walk in, oh crap, I don't even know what the forecast is, but I do know that it's very, very mopey Melbourne today, yeah, welcoming us into spring. Bit, bit of sun. Dr. Ray, good morning. Morning, Dr. I think I saw some toilet paper on the floor, uh, maybe, you know, tracked in from running from back from the loo there. <laughs> <laughs> Check your shoes. Pants uh, <laughs> around my ankles? No, yeah, no. no. It wasn't uh, like that. Uh, we're, we're all good. Now, folks, you've tuned into a science show for an hour, so um, if that's scaring you, uh, now's the time to run. But uh, if you are interested, we have a couple of great guests coming in soon. But before we do that, we're going to do some news. Dr. Linden, what has been floating your boat this week? Oh, what's the that's a very good uh, good way to describe it, mm. Dr. Shane. This week, I've really been getting into everybody's favourite climate driver, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. Oh, yes. index? Is there? There's an there's index. There's an there index. Too. Yeah, yes, I like there the is index. An index. I so, personally like that. Oh. Okay. So, so I, 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 just before we went to air, I, I had made the gaffe of saying just El Nino because I thought it was the pop culture thing, and you know, it, but apparently it's not just El Nino. That's, that's right. Because that's only part of it. Yes, that's right, Dr. Ray. So the El Nino Southern Oscillation, uh, there's lots of different things that affect Australia's climate, but El Nino is probably the most famous one. A lot mm. of people have heard of El Nino and it's it's an atmosphere and ocean Pacific pattern. So the El Nino, La Nina patterns that we get, that's the ocean. And then the Southern Oscillation is what happens up in the atmosphere. They're connected. Oh. You put them together, you get the El Nino Southern Oscillation mm. or ENSO. And this is oh. not, I, I've seen pictures of this where, you know, like um, color-coded pictures of this across the globe. And it's not a small extent over which this has an effect. No. That's, it's not just Australia. Like, yeah, it's that's huge. right. That's right. So ENSO, El Nino, I'll just use those terms interchangeably. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. It's confusing. I, I, I'm, I'm learning it. stuff. You're this is it? great. Excellent. Excellent. So it affects, yeah, it, it's actually the largest global driver of year-to-year kind of variability of the climate, mm. right? So if you get an El Nino event on a global scale, it'll be 0.1 to 0.2 degrees warmer over the whole planet. I know that wow. doesn't sound like a lot, but over the whole That's planet, a lot. Yeah. it's pretty significant. And yeah, if you see a map of where things are kind of correlated with what's going on in the tropical Pacific, which is where mm. El Ninos and La Ninas occur, it, it has far-reaching impacts all over the globe. And we call those impacts... Get ready for it, Dr. Ray. Teleconnections. Oh, teleconnections. Teleconnections. Good word. That sounds like something where I can move shit with my mind. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. It sounds pretty good. <laughs> but what it basically means is the impact of something in one place affecting something remotely. So right. sort of like a, maybe a fancy word for the butterfly effect. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could think of it like that. But- but the butterfly effect is very chaotic, and this sounds like there's some really hard science and modeling behind it. Yeah, there is a lot of research that's been done in uh, on El Ninos and La Nina. So El Ninos is when you would get uh, the slackening of the trade winds across the Pacific Ocean. Warm water sloshes back over to South America, uh, and that means you kind of get... Uh, in the Australian region, you would have warmer conditions, drier conditions. La Nina is the opposite. These trade winds strengthen and they push more warmer surface water back over to Australia. Cooler water pops up off the South American coast. And you know, that's actually why it's called El Nino. Does anyone else know why it's called El Nino? The little boy. Little boy. That's yeah, right. Little boy. And there's a little girl too. La Nina, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the little boy is actually boy. named after uh, Jesus because the South American yeah. fishermen would notice, oh, just the waters are getting warmer or they're getting cooler around Christmas time, mm. which oh. is when El Nino, La Nina events kind of nice. peak. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, 
El Nino's La Nina's, they have a big impact on global climate. And of course, you can imagine there's been heaps of research going into how these things might change in a warmer world. Are we going to get more El Nino's, more La Nina's? Are they going to be longer? Are they going to be stronger? Mm. Is the atmosphere in the ocean going to work together or not work together? How are remote parts going to get affected? All these kinds of things. And there's lots of different results. There's actually still a large amount of uncertainty about the structure and the complex dynamics about what's going to happen with ENSO events, right? But there have been a couple of papers recently that have gone, okay, well, we can look at that complicated stuff and there's still a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen in the ocean. But let's just cut straight to the chase and see what's going to happen with these teleconnections. What's going to happen with the impacts of these events in the future, Mm. okay? Regardless of what's going to happen at the ocean scale. And the way they've done that, there's a couple of papers that have come out, one from the Bureau of Meteorology, actually, some Australian researchers, and another from some US researchers that just came out this week, have looked at a bunch of different models. Here's another word coming at you, ensembles. Ooh. You know that one? That's okay. We got, 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 got that, that one? one. Yeah. Okay. Like ensemble cast, like yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, group, yeah. group, group groups, things. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, great. Showing your age, buddy. Oh, my God. No, now I'm learning. Now I'm learning. Yeah, so basically you get a, a bunch of different climate models or the same model that you kind of tweak the first step. You tweak the initial conditions and so you get a range of possible outcomes. You get a lot of noise in there and then you can use the statistics to kind of figure out if there's anything that, that's changing. Mm. And both of these studies have found, which is interesting, that regardless of your initial conditions, regardless of what's happening at the structural level of ENSO, these the areas like Australia, where the climate is driven to a certain extent by El Nino and La Nina events, the impacts are going to increase. Mm. So ENSO events are going to pack more punch in the future, regardless of their structure. So the uh, one of the papers was looking at rainfall changes and the other one was looking at temperature and bushfires, right? Mm. And so uh, this paper su- these papers suggest that for Australia, for example, an El Nino event will mean um, drier conditions, warmer conditions, and mm. so enhanced bushfire risk. And in the future, that will be more likely during mm. an El Nino event. That, that impact will be greater. I know it's yet another depressing yeah, story yeah. that I'm bringing, but I thought it was really interesting so- that they've just kind of cut to the chase of what are the impacts going to be, and they've used some really cool stats to do that. What's the impact of a La Nina? Oh, in a La Nina is kind of the opposite. In okay. Eastern mm. Australia, we'll get, um, we generally get our wettest years during La Nina. But, but it, it seems to me, I mean, I, I, I can imagine what you're saying is true, like how that modelling works out, plays out, but it seems to me there's a complexity here too that's perhaps not being talked about, and that is that we know that in different parts of the globe, the effects of global warming will affect temperature and conditions differently. Mm-hmm. So you you play that alongside with this connection between places, and all of a sudden, one extreme over here will start to change the extremes over there in yeah. different and complicated ways. Yes. And so it may it may be, and I, I fully appreciate that, you know, us just getting drier and blah, blah, mm. blah, but it could be that some of those other connections play out in a more complicated way than that. And in fact, it could be quite different than that. It could, you know, maybe depending on what's on the other end of the connection. Mm. And it could be that our end of the connection might affect the other end oh, quite yeah. significantly. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about this process mm. is, is that you're connecting vastly different locations on the earth together. And those different locations will be affected quite differently by global warming. So it's not like all of them just go up in temperature. No. And so that complexity must be extremely hard to yeah, model. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the cool thing about this kind of work. They're saying there's a few things at play here. You're going to get a mean increase. So mm. everything is going to 
go up. Go up. Yep. Uh, but then you've also got these variable things, how one, you know, the rainfall in one part is going to set mm. off a kind of wave in the atmosphere that's going to affect the climate in another part. And so you have to model both. It's not just like you move the curve up. You move mm. the curve up and then you change the variability of the curve, and I think that's what these papers are really looking at. Is, is there anything coming out on the extent of these things? So, for example, you know, Australia often suffers from quite long mm-hmm. linear events, you know, like mm. that are the brutal because they're long, and then yeah. sometimes we have these weaker ones, which, as I know, the Southern Oscillation Index gives you an indication of how strong or weak these events yes, will be. Right. Is there anything coming out of the modelling on, on that length as well as just yeah. the strength? Because the length can be the killer mm. as much as the strength. The papers that I've read, I'm not... Uh, across all the literature, because there's lots of different people mm. that study this in lots of different parts of the world. But I think I think the results have actually crossed the gamut. So some people would say, oh, we're going to get longer, Harsher. more intense yeah. El Nino's. And certainly in Australia, the research is suggesting that drought conditions are likely to become, yeah. you know, El Nino type conditions are likely to become longer. Uh, but there are other papers that say, oh, we're actually going to go more towards a La Nina-like situation, um, which would mean wetter conditions. So the the jury is still out there, I think, partially because there is so much inter- like natural variability in what happens in this pattern and also because we don't have a huge record. Yeah, yeah. Long-term effects. Long-term yeah. effects. There's a lot of paleo information about what goes on in the Pacific, uh, but instrumentally and atmospherically there's mm. not a huge record. So it's still a big area of, east of research and it is just amazingly complicated but fascinating yeah, as well how one part of the world can affect another. Yeah, I just I love that aspect of it, the, mm. the long-range effects that, yeah. that weather, climate and weather have and play into each other. Mm. Dr. Ray, what do you got? Dr. Shane, um, <clears throat> I wanted to talk about earthquakes. Uh, but, uh, Keep the good times rolling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. And, uh, <laughs> it, it, these are these are these are, these are uh, human-induced earthquakes. Oh, even better. That, that still amazes me. So we're talking about um, earthquakes that can happen from oil, gas, or geothermal engineering uh, exploration. Uh, where fracking? In, well, it's not, it's not just fracking. I mean, fracking has one set of things, mm-hmm. but most of the time, people often forget that even when we recover oil, we pump water down. If the oil well isn't pressurized enough mm, and yeah, get, just to and get up, oil yeah, back up. Oil and, up. And, yeah. and so there, it's not as big a deal because it's often fluid exchange. You push one down and get the yeah. other back. You're not necessarily yeah, yeah. creating as much pressure, but there are plenty of instances where you're actually pressurizing water to go down into a, a bore well. And, um, we know they induce earthquakes, uh, mm-hmm. and moderate ones is, is what they say. They're mm-hmm. kind of five-ish on the Richter scale. Yeah. Five-ish on five-ish the Richter scale. Well, no, so they, they, they can be as big as that. Excuse yeah. me. The, 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 the paper I was looking at had a couple examples of where things had gone wrong and they, they actually induced fives, yeah. but that's when they induced, they put water into hard rock. And they didn't know there was a fault that was there, so they filled up the fault directly, and that's when you get about five. As, as I always say, earthquakes where depth really matters. <laughs> it does. And, and one of the, 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 the challenges about predicting these type of induced earthquakes is um, they can happen really far from the well site, sometimes more mm-hmm. than 10 kilometers away. So connecting them is a little more difficult. And so this study took um, 18 different earthquake-producing injection sites uh, around the world to look at this now, there's there's actually many many more, but they actually picked sites that were in isolation, so they weren't part of a field of of injection sites, which ruled out almost all of Oklahoma, sadly, and Alberta because they have large fields where they don't have isolated wells, and the fields they certainly know generate earthquakes far away, but they wanted to correlate it to individual wells, and they this so this was in North America and Europe and two sites in South Australia. 
Hmm. Uh, yeah. hmm. Not Victoria, obviously. Um, but uh, <laughs> what they found that was really interesting was uh, whether or not you had a long-range earthquake really depended on the base rock and where you injected it. So if you had mostly hard base rock and you were injecting into more of the base rock, so we're saying when we say base rock, we mean rock that isn't that porous other than perhaps the, the, the part you're breaking up to get the gas out. So it's got a lower porosity. It's more solid. Um, those earthquakes tend to be shorter range, Mm. 10 kilometers or less that the, the pressure they induce. And that's, this could be from injecting something from over hours to years that you get those earthquakes, but they tend to dampen off pretty quickly. But if you have sedimentary rock, which is more porous, on top of base rock, and you're injecting into the sedimentary rock, then that's when you actually can see these earthquakes that can go 30 kilometers away from the site. Mm-hmm. And um, and they thought about it, and they did a lot of reasonable mon- uh, detailed modeling of how that the, the mechanics of how that that stress is transferred. And the, and in the base rock case, you get this. Uh, uh, the uh, the earthquakes come from basically hydraulic pressure. You're pushing water through holes and, and pour it from the bore, and and that's causing the rock to shake and break. But in the sedimentary case, you have other effects as well because you get what's called a pore elastic effect. I know. Great word. Just huh? great words. Great um, words today. And, and so a pore elastic effect is when you squish a solid or apply stress on a solid, but the fluid flow also matters. So if you think about a dry sponge and squish it, Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty easy. If you take a wet sponge and squish it, you're not just compressing the sponge. The water's got to get out of the way. Yeah, so yeah. if you have a, a very fancy sponge with very fine pores and go to squeeze it, it actually takes some time for that water to drain out. And then when that water drains out, that whole solid will feel that effect more and it will actually help permeate the stress further out. And so um, there they're seeing things that can go for 30 kilometers. That's a long way. Yeah. Here's the kicker. The best strategies for mitigation of existing strategies for mitigating um, earthquakes from this type of injection is to actually inject into the sedimentary rock. Mm. Because that was the what was thought was the best practice to try to reduce those earthquakes. Whereas it turns out you really do need to pay attention to the rock you're going into because if it's sedimentary sitting above a, a hard base rock, it's actually a worse earthquake generation zone. Mm. Wait, why is mm. that? Because so the sedimentary rock is the one that. Oh, oh, why do they suggest that? Yeah, I think that's probably a complicated area. So, um, I think those guidelines are probably I'm speculating here are more around probably based around not hitting faults directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yep. Whereas, because if if you if you go into base rock and you do land right on a fault, that's when you get the Richter scale five earthquakes. Yeah. So that's serious. So that's serious. So if you hit base rock and land straight in a fault. It's a much bigger problem. So mm. if you land on the sedimentary rock, I guess you're less likely to. Mm. to oh, go. Interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, on a more cheerful note. <laughs> Please. <laughs> now, I, I actually saw um, something interesting. So you, you would have heard of this CRISPR gene editing tool. Everyone, I think, is starting to have heard of this now. So it's not, it's a, not, a, not a potato chip. And not a chocolate-based snack. I it sounds like a crispy coating. But, yeah. um, but basically, this is a scenario where, and I know, folks, I know zero about this. So I'm just going to say it is a technique that allows you to edit very easily individual genes in the human genome or any genome um, using a virus to transform, uh, to to take the edit in. And if you think about this, if there's a problem gene that you want to deal with, you can deal with just that gene and no others. Now, this is a very, very precise tool and comes with some scary possibilities because if you start affecting the genome, 
um, especially the parts that are passed on through reproduction, then those parts will be passed on, edited and changed. Of course, it also has some incredible possibilities in terms of diseases. Now, many of the diseases we know have many, many genes involved, and so those ones are harder to deal with. But there are some that only have a few genes or even one gene involved. And there's one that is actually... You know, this is a, a really shocking one called Duchenne muscular dystrophy or DMD. And this is a, a disease where the production of something called dystrophin is not done properly by the body. Now, this is the chemical that's used to give muscles their strength and keep our muscles um, strong. And if you think about, you know, well, you know, so what? Why, why do you need your muscles? Well, first of all, they help you breathe. Second of all, they pump, help your heart pump, which is basically just one big muscle. So if you're not producing the, the required materials to keep these muscles strong, you will basically die. And this affects one in 5,000 children and pretty much, um, every, every individual who gets this particular disease dies by the age of about 30. It's very serious. And there hasn't, there's, there's really no way to treat this. So, um, it's, it's something that's very problematic. Now, I want to be very careful in the way I present this story because this is not indicating that there is a treatment for this disease right now. And often when you read these articles that they'll say, you know, could blah, 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 should blah, 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 you know, will soon. Well, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. But what, what this team from, um, the US have been doing is looking at using this CRISPR gene editing tool to modify the particular gene that, that is um, involved in the production of dystrophin and seeing whether or not they can switch back on and fix it. And they've managed to do this in four dogs. So this is not a huge study. It's four dogs, but it's a larger it's a larger animal. It's not yeah. a mice. It's a larger animal. Did they start with mice and move to yep, dogs? Yep, they've, oh, moved, wow. they've moved up the chain. And um, what they've managed to do, and, and here's, here's an idea. So in order to be clinically helpful, you need to have a 15% um, change in the sort of amount of this material that the body produces. That's seen as, if you can do do that, then you'll affect patients positively. And what they've managed to do is get it up to 92% of normal levels in these dogs. So this is, this is quite quite extraordinary. Um, and it means that, you know, these, these issues around the diaphragm not being strong enough to help us breathe, around the heart failing, um, with, that, with that sort of response will be, you know, a... a, a, a um, a viable treatment that's that's working. So it's you know again it's it's long it's long term study stuff. So it's a fair way off, but to have this work in in a number of dogs is actually pretty significant. And this CRISPR tool is like extraordinary. So, a couple of questions: How many genes do they have to edit? It's just one. Okay. Yeah, and, and and they're literally editing the entire living animal. Yeah. So what happens it's is you birth, yeah right? you get you get you get the virus to deliver this to the body, and and so there's a couple of questions here. One is how effective would this be in humans? We don't know. We don't know if it's safe even. Um, and there'll be clinical trials coming, you know, that they'll be moving into to do this. But the second is how long lasting it is. So is oh. this, is this a permanent scenario that will allow you to produce dystrophin for the rest of your life? That part they don't know either. So they've managed to do it and they've managed to see this effect. That's why I say, you know, the could, should, maybe is at the very top of this story because this is potentially a, a fair way off being a viable treatment, but it's a good start. Mm-hmm. So I remember sitting in a, in a talk in a chemical engineering department where they were talking about delivering uh, DNA into a cell nucleus to help deal with a, a disease. Mm. And, and they always talked about plasmid integration. And I'm not quite sure what those terms mean, but what I understood it was whether or not you delivered something that would make the protein locally in your cell, but at some point, unless it actually integrated into your DNA, it was going to mm. wear out and it wouldn't take. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah. and that's the least that, I mean, this was in the nineties that people were terrified of, 
changing DNA then. They were like, oh, if we change it, we don't know what we did. Yeah. And in fact, this is, so one of the concerns that they have to look at is when you change this one particular part of the genome or one gene, does it have any other side effects? Because yes. Body teleconnections. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and this is where a lot of diseases that are very complex and problematic because they require so many genes to be modified and understanding how they affect us in other ways is extremely complicated and frankly we just don't know some of the diseases where there's single genes that need to be edited are potentially a little simpler but they still have to work out does that gene just do that um Mm. you know because often these genes interact with with each other and there's there's a lot of understanding that's needed there so the testing for safety the testing for efficacy all these things are a fair way off but this is a really interesting start for what is a, a pretty you know dreadful disease so I, I was that was going to be a cheerful story, but yeah. it's, it's, it's it's a good it's a, ray a good, of hope. it's a it's a a ray of hope. Was yeah. that a pun? Because you're Doctor Ray. No, I'm going to leave that one alone. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Now, welcome back, everybody. We have our first guest in the studio. It's Doctor Levin Coleman, who is from the Graham Clark Institute for Biomedical Engineering at the University of Melbourne and the Centre for Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University of Technology, and also the St Vincent's Hospital. Levin, welcome to the Triple R Studio. Yeah, thanks for having me on here today. It's um, it's really interesting. Uh, you're so you're working on epilepsy specifically around the area of seizure prediction. Can can you give us a, a bit of a rundown, normally, of how seizure prediction is done for patients? Like uh, this is not something I think people are generally aware of. That yeah, this so, is a predictive thing. Yeah, so it's not a reality yet for patients, mm-hmm. but uh, basically, there's 20 million people worldwide with drug resistant epilepsy, and there's not many treatment options for them, and Basically, their seizures occur at random times. Not many people can predict their own seizures mm. and basically creates, you know, affects their quality of life, creates a lot of stress, affects their employability, affects what they can do each day, not knowing when a seizure is going to occur. Mm. And so we want to basically be able to predict people's seizures, ha- have them have a device that can give them a warning when a seizure might occur or give a probability of when a seizure is going to occur at a certain time of day or certain things like that. Is there thinking around how difficult it is to do the prediction relative to the, I guess, intensity of these seizures? So, for example, would I expect really people who have really intense seizures to be easier to predict than those that have relatively mild seizures? Uh, Well, so far, the results are that people have more seizures, their seizures are harder to predict. Okay. But that could be because they have multiple types of seizures and things like that. And they're probably the people that would benefit more because people who have rare seizures obviously aren't so stressed about having them. Mm. What type of data do you measure on a person to predict a seizure? Do they wear a cap with like measuring brain waves or pulse? Or yeah, well, the the most common form of data is intracranial brain recordings, right? And mm. so these are usually patients that have to have resective brain surgery, and so you do planning beforehand, put electrodes onto the brain surface or within the brain and then record their brain activity. And the standard is to record it for two weeks duration, but seizures are rare events, so it's very hard to develop a reliable predictor with barely any data. So in 2013, we ran the world's first seizure prediction trial with a company from Seattle, NeuroVista, mm-hmm. and uh, basically we implanted 15 patients uh, up to a period of up to three years of duration, and the trial basically showed seizure prediction was possible uh, but it only worked for certain people. And so we're trying to get improvements with that data set that we've acquired uh, to motivate a larger scale clinical trial of seizure prediction in order to mm. make seizure prediction a reality. 
When you looked at those patients, what, I mean, what sort of things did you see in terms of their electrical brain activity? I mean, was it um, was it something that was consistent? So, so, say it was one patient yeah. you were looking at. Every time they had a seizure, was there the same sort of behaviour electrically in the brain that preceded it? We we were able to see that. Well, there's no universal predict or biomarker or, or pattern brain activity pattern that you can use to predict seizures. And so it seems to be you have to develop algorithms that are patient specific. Mm. And also there's like some people you might be able to see a signal quite clearly visually, but generally it seems we have to develop these complicated machine learning based algorithms that can pick up hidden features within the data and make predictions based on that. And mm. so for the people that had less seizures, it seemed like we could get really good performance, but people with more seizures, there's the epilepsy is more complicated, it seems. Mm. So the patterns underlying the seizures, the, the, you know, the patterns just occurring just before the seizures are much more complex, probably. Mm. Now you've been, you've been doing this now. You've been looking at, uh, essentially crowdsourcing yep. these algorithms. So tell us about that because that's fascinating. Like people all over the world have been working on optimizing these algorithms to determine, uh, the seizure prediction. Yeah. Um, yeah, so seizure prediction is a really hard problem. It's like trying to predict earthquakes, um, trying to predict changes in the weather. It's very similar ideas, and we try and adopt ideas from that area. Um, so the idea was to sort crowdsource algorithms from all over the world and to do that through a Kaggle competition. Hmm. So Kaggle's a, a basically a data science competition uh, hosting platform online, and usually companies put their data up online to get... Uh, people from all around the world to predict whether their customers are going to buy a certain product mm. or, or think solve problems like that. Uh, but we wanted to solve a medical problem, in particular seizure prediction. So we used data from our clinical trial of a seizure prediction device and we took the data from the, the three patients whose seizures were the hardest to predict and we basically crowdsourced over 10,000 algorithms from over 400 teams and 600 over 600 participants. And... Uh, following up from that contest, which was done in 2016, we evaluated the top 10 algorithms from that competition and we found basically a 90% improvement in performance relative to the previous clinical trial results. Um, and so the idea is we want to see if those algorithms that have yielded improvement for those patients are going to yield improvement for the other patients mm -hmm. in our trial data set. And then we want to... Um, uh, basically evaluate it for more data and more patients. That's amazing. And yeah, so how applicable do you think this, it's an, inc it's incredible that people are contributing to this, but how applicable do you think they're going to be? You say that every patient has a different relationship with their seizures. So how, yeah. like how hopeful are you that you can then apply this out to the wider world? Yeah. So, um, in general, the idea behind the, the contest was to crowdsource algorithms. And underlying these algorithms, are basically, the first step is computing features or different measures um, or quantities based on the brain activity. And then you feed those features into what's called machine learning algorithms. And uh, they tr try and make a decision as to whether a, a given data segment is uh, pre-seizure or not. And you can use that for making predictions of having a seizure. And so from that contest and the follow-up evaluation, we've sort of got a top set of algorithms. And what we found is that different groups of algorithms will perform better than different groups of other algorithms for a given patient. And so the idea we have now is to um, build up a set of algorithms, 
train them on a patient you know, up on the cloud or, or you know, off offline. And then once you've got those algorithms and you you pick the best one for a patient, and then you run that prospectively on a on a wearable or implantable device that can predict the patient's seizures. Mm-hmm. I had a question about the aspect of of the crowdsourcing. So the folks over at Graham Clark and yourself, pretty sharp bunch of people. So why is it, I, I mean, in your ability to come up with algorithms, one would expect to be pretty sophisticated. So what is the aspect of this? Is it that they're smarter people or is it that there's a diversity in approach that has a scale on this scale has a strength that we don't normally think about? Where, where, why is it that you guys didn't come up with all these algorithms? Because is it time or viewpoint or? Uh, yeah, well. There's, we've definitely developed our own algorithms, and so we have a suite there. I think there's several aspects. So obviously, Kaggle basically draws on the top data scientists and machine learning experts from around the world. Uh, so when we ran the contest, there were about 65,000 members, and today there's about 1.5 million. So there's basically a, a huge number of people you can access with basically state-of-the-art expertise in machine learning and data science that we wouldn't necessarily have because we're more focused on the patient aspects, what's more important for the patient. And mm. whereas these people are much more trained and have more know-how in the computer science aspects of it all. And Levin, how did you find people interacted with the crowdsourcing component compared to their other options, if they could have helped a company sell more shoes compared <laughs> to helping you help epilepsy patients? Did you get much personal interaction with the people contributing to the crowdsourcing? Uh, yeah. So, well, first of all, to get people to participate, we had twenty thousand US dollars prize money, and that's nice. pretty. That's nice. pretty and, good. And yeah. that basically motivate the number of participants we had. And then during the competition, you have a, a forum where you you discuss the, the data with people because they're obviously not experts in the in the data that we've provided because they're more data scientists, and um, and then. During the contest, there's a leaderboard that shows their performance of the algorithm on just a, a portion of the of the testing data or the contest data. And so there's a lot of excitement, people competing with each other during the competition and engaging and learning. And And then at the end of the competition, the, the prize money is awarded based on a, another portion of the test set. Uh, and, yeah, so, so now we've sort of moved from the competition platform to our own permanent online platform called epilepsyecosystem.org. And basically we've put the top algorithms from the contest up on the ecosystem as well as the contest data. And we're basically getting new people to continue to work on the algorithms to yield more improvements and trying to get more improvements for the full trial data set. Mm because the contest only focused on a portion of the, the trial data set. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, can you give us an idea just quickly of um, how, you know, one of these algorithms, how many lines of code are we talking about? I mean, how, how difficult is it to write one of these algorithms? Uh, well, a lot of the data scientists sort of, you know, already have everything on the sh- shelf. They just sort of pull yeah. stuff off the shelf and, yeah. and, and, and run it. So there's, there's thousands of lines of code, but obviously people and machine learning and data science becoming much more mature. So... It's very easy for for even novices to start using very complicated algorithms, uh, and so we're still trying to reduce. Like a lot of the algorithms in the contest were too complicated to run on a wearable or an implantable mm, device. Right, yeah. They use up too much battery too quickly, yeah. and the device wouldn't last long enough. Yeah, today, 
So T- today, but yeah, you know, next year might be right. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> I think um, we've had people on here about the Fitbit for the yeah. brain. And so it, that's a sort of device we want to have algorithms mm-hmm. working on. It, and we, so we need to get the algorithms more efficient, but maintaining the performance level for seizure prediction. Yeah, look, it's fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for coming and talking to us about this, Livin, because I think this is that 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 beautiful um, connection between medical problems and utilising the resources across the world, not just locally. And I think uh, the more, you know, it, it's one of the things I still have issues with the Nobel Prize and the way it's awarded, because you know, these are the sorts of things that science is doing today, where it's taking advantage of expertise from across the globe. And it doesn't matter where you're from, if you can do this stuff. Um, you can contribute. So, um, yeah, great work. I look forward to seeing where this is going to go. I'm sure um, we'll hear a lot more about it soon. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. Dr. Kevin Coleman is from the Graham Clark Institute for Biomedical Engineering at the University of Melbourne and the Centre for Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University of Technology and St. Vincent's Hospital. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Nikki Craner. She's a project officer in neuroscience at the Melbourne Neuroscience Institute and the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Nikki, I should say welcome back because I think we had you on many years ago. It was, yes, maybe eight years ago when eight I was doing ago. my PhD, I think. Yeah. Jeez, that uh, <laughs> explains why I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember last week. Um, understandable. That's about 800, eight, 900 guests ago. Um, now, what was your PhD in? Just remind me quickly. Um, so I did, I was looking at um, a gene that causes a lot of different cancers and how it was controlled at a sort of transcriptional mm. level. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And you left. I did. Yeah, so you, you did a, a postdoc. You worked as a researcher for a little while? Um, I didn't do a postdoc, actually, right. no. I did work in a lab, um, actually in a lab that was researching muscular dystrophy. Yep. So, um, yeah, I worked with a student who had muscular dystrophy yeah. and he was researching that. Um, yeah, so I didn't actually do a postdoc. Right. So um, now talk us through, I, I always like to understand this because I've done it myself and others have done it, but that transition out of science. So, mm. you know, at what point did you kind of realise that it wasn't for you? Um, actually, I think relatively early on, um, I was, you know, slowly starting to realize what the academic life would involve. And I mm. saw, you know, the pressure to publish and to constantly be applying for grants. And I, I, I knew that it wasn't for me. Um, I take my hat off to people that do it. It's amazing. Mm. Mm. Um, but obviously love the science, but didn't want to be a scientist in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So during my PhD, I sort of made sure I built up, built up my skills in other areas to make sure that I was going to be able to get a job somewhere else afterwards. Yeah. So we, we, I mean, we were just talking about this before, um, before the show started. What, what other areas were you building skills up in? Cause I think this is something of great interest to people. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, so definitely science communication. So yeah. I think actually when I was on this show last was sort of the beginning of my science communication career, which oh, is did we wreck it interesting. For you? <laughs> well, obviously <laughs> not. <laughs> but you gave you gave up your academic career because you came on the show. I'm not sure that's good advertising for us. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Just correlated, not causative. Exactly. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think I took um, part in the three minute thesis. Actually, that yep. was my first. Um, uh, yeah, science communication experience, and then I sort of slowly started to realise the importance. Of it, so mm-hmm. I um, I got involved with um, a science communication magazine called Lateral, mm-hmm. um, and I'm the art director of that, and I have been for sort of the last three years. Um, and I started doing writing, and I also did things like event management. Um, I did a, a graduate certificate at the Melbourne Business School mm-hmm. to get sort of you know a range of different skills and to get a look into the uh, the other world. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I obviously. Um, worked 
um, during that time as well, doing uh, research assistant work yeah, and things yeah. like that. I, I still think it's one of the things that's missing, you know, in all the PhDs across the land is the, the broader school set that basically, and, and frankly, is not just useful if you leave academia. It's damn useful if you stay in it. And exactly. people have to learn it the hard way, but it, it should be part of, of training, like uh, especially around the communication stuff. I mean, you won't you get me started within another couple of hours. But um, <laughs> now you, you've moved further, though, now into actually starting up your own sort of or, or a business around this. Yes. Um, and you mentioned, um, you know, the art and so forth. I mean, t- mm-hmm. talk us through what you – it's a visual science communication collective. Yes, yes. It's almost <laughs> as bad as Dr. Linden's Southern Oscillation Index. <laughs> <laughs> what's your index, Nikki? <laughs> <laughs> what is this? What's this, what's this visual, visual science communication collective? What's that? Yeah, right. Um, so, I mean, we're called Square Cell um, mm-hmm. and we are – um, an illustration and animation service for scientists and medical professionals to help promote the research of scientists visually, basically. Mm. So, mm. obviously, um, we're seeing an increasing need to communicate things visually um, in this world where, you know, you're getting bombarded with so much information all the time that you need to be able to capture um, attention and quickly. Um, so, yeah, we... Uh, Andrew and myself, so Andrew's my um, business partner, he's mm-hmm. also um, a scientist by trade and he is now um, a biomedical animator as well. So right. we both um, have sort of a different sort of range of experience in, in using art to communicate science and we realised that it's a very sort of up and coming area, more and more people are wanting to... Um, you know, produce animations to explain their work to the public, for mm, example, mm. or or even just produce sort of, you know, beautiful images for their um, a journal cover right. or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah so um, we realised that we, we both sort of had the knowledge and the skills to be able to um, bring together something like this. So we, um, it, we're a collective of scientific artists, basically. Mm. So everyone... Um, on, on our team is um, got a science background as well as an artistic background. It's, it's very interesting. One of the things I find fascinating, uh, every now and then people would have seen this, um, Einstein and Gogo, uh, listeners who follow our Facebook site would also know that on occasion I will put up something which I term an agnostic visual. So this is a this is an image or a, or a video that requires no explanation but actually gives you such clarity around scientific terms. And there's been a number of these in particular with regards to climate modelling yes. and changes in global temperatures. Another one popped up just recently which showed all the cities in a grid and how each one had an anomaly and when it happened and then it runs you through 150-odd years and you see as you get to the last few years, like they're all just red. And it's, you don't need an explanation to, to mm-hmm. understand what's going on. Um, but the, the imagery does that for you. I mean, how much of that sort of work are you doing? Because I think there's a lot of... A lot of stuff out there where the imagery requires so much explanation once you see it. Mm. But, you know, the real power is in using these images in a way that people can just look at and go, wow, yep, that makes sense. Or a video that says, yeah, wow, makes sense. I don't have to read three pages of text to understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely the idea of what we um, want to produce. So I I said we, um, well, I didn't say, we we just launched a couple of weeks ago, so we're still Mm. very um, much in the early phases of what we're doing. We've got a couple of um, jobs in the pipeline at the moment, which we're um, confirming. So yeah, we'll definitely be trying to communicate sort of complex topics in ways that you don't have to digest a Mm. whole lot of information in written form. <laughs> so I, I think this is rather interesting if you think about where, where publications are going. We already, I'm, I'm sh- when I see colleagues have a very high profile paper, they recognize they perhaps don't make the best figure and will 
look mm-hmm. for professional help. But um, in talking to an editor about particularly review journals about how science communicates overall field and perspectives, uh, I've been in discussions with editors where they're like, we'd really like to see, you know, instead of a paper, maybe it should be four PowerPoint slides, four visual slides communicating mm-hmm. where a field is going. Or a, uh, a comic strip, even. Or, or a comic strip. <laughs> I like that idea. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, I was thinking of Garfield for a second. <laughs> but... Uh, but but have you have you been approached or had discussions around that the idea of uh, of the how publications themselves might transform particularly when they're not reporting details but trying to report perspective have have you had those types of discussions yet or? Um, um, Andrew and I definitely have yes the idea that we you know would hope that you know that we are changing the way that science is communicated across the board um, but yeah as since we're in early days of the the business we um, haven't had discussions with editors yet but I would definitely like to yes mm. Nikki who are you trying to communicate with the most and I imagine that when you're setting up the business you probably thought okay we want to make more members of the public understand what this science or we want scientists to communicate with each other in a more efficient way as opposed mm. to a thousand 18 page papers that yes. everybody has to read you know what who's your target audience in this first instance well i think initially we, the idea was scientists between scientists so science communicating scientists communicating to each other but i think it's really going to depend on on it on our clients and who we get and what they actually want to communicate so we both have experience in, you know, communicating between scientists as well as to the public. So we would really like to offer both of those kinds of services, yes. Mm. It's, it's certainly something that, uh, you know, is, is a key part of communication. I mean, one, one of the things I was, I was teaching a, a course on, on how to communicate research mm-hmm. um, to the BCCC uh, PhD students this week, and one of the things that I said to them was, you have to make sure that your PowerPoint slides support you, mm-hmm. that you don't support your PowerPoint slides. And this is one of the problems that I think often happens is it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. But, you know, grabbing one or two great visuals to support you in your message mm-hmm. Is something that's really important, but people don't have either the skills or the time to produce it. So, exactly. I mean, how would people go about, uh, you know, say, for example, just your average PhD student or postdoc looking for a couple of good visuals? I mean, is that the sort of stuff that, that you would be sure. producing as well? Yeah, yes, so not yes. just a big scale, you no, know, no. I'm, a, I'm a research institute and I want a two-minute video on our, you know, for our donors. I mean, but, you know, generally, the general scientist that doesn't have a huge budget, yeah. you know, but, but wants one or two Key visuals, that sort of stuff that... Yes, and that's, I think that's where we sort of want to fit in as well because I don't think there's really, um, you know, that opportunity for small, smaller scientists, you know. Um, Mm. Obviously, the big institutes, they can have their own animation teams. Yeah, their own people. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But we would like to be able to help the smaller people and offer, yeah, uh, those kind of services. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds really good. Now, uh, just before we let you go, where do people go to find... Your work. Yeah, um, so squarecell.com.au is our website. We're also on Twitter and Instagram under the same name, Squarecell. So, yeah, come Sounds and great. join our team. And I love, I, I had a look, and I love one of your visuals, which is a picture of, you've got to have a look at this. It's a whole lot of cells, which look like just normal round cells. And then there's one square one. Which exactly. I thought was really, yeah, it's a, there's a square one, which is a cube. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was really kind of cool. So. so the idea is to, yeah, we're going to help you make your science stand out. Yeah, and it stood <laughs> out. The square one stood out, like the proverbial, amongst a whole other round ones. Uh, Nikki, thanks so much for coming in again and chatting to us. Uh, good luck with the work, and we hope this uh, business for you goes really well. Great. Thanks for having me. Three. Triple. We have a few minutes left, and you wanted to talk about the Eureka Prizes. Yeah, I just wanted to bring them up. Wednesday night, the Sydney Town Hall. 
was all aglow with science because Australia's Oscars of Science were on on Wednesday night, the Eureka Prizes. They've been going for 28 years. That's a while, actually. It's a long time, Mm. isn't it? Mm. And I guess the prizes change over time, but it's still considered uh, by many to be the the pinnacle of Australia's science. And there were 16 uh, prizes awarded this year and Mm -hmm. nominees, so um, amazing amazing uh, collection of people who were nominated and some amazing science that won as well. They didn't have like a moonlight moment where one person thought they won and they actually was the other. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I wasn't there. I think everyone was a winner. Science was the real winner. Everyone's a winner. Uh, Yeah, but there were a couple of prizes that uh, jumped out at me that I thought, oh, wow, that's that's a really amazing piece of science. So uh, citizen science is a passion of mine and they have an award for excellence in citizen science. They've had that for the last few years, yeah. And the group that won this year was a team called Questa Game. They've been going for a long time. They run, I'm not sure if they would describe it as this, but it's kind of a, a Pokemon Go but for real animals. So, oh, okay. oh, right, for real animals. Yeah, so it's yeah. an app you can download so, on your phone. This is like one level above Shazam for Frogs yes. from the, the yeah. water. I think if you could, you could use Shazam for Frogs from Melbourne Water to find your animal. They call it that. No, that's, I think it's called Frog Watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Dr. Ray, let's be serious yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah so Quest Game, they won the prize for excellence in citizen science. They've had uh, over one million sightings of different animals, wow. over 40 different countries. It started oh. in Canberra, this mm. uh, organisation. That's amazing. There have been new spider species discovered using this app, and it's a really great way to get lots of people out into nature and also discovering things in science. Mm. There was also the prize for medical Excellent was was won by uh, somebody from the University of Sydney who has developed a glue that can help seal wounds really quickly. Oh. Yeah, it's a glue that kind of adheres using light and it works twice as quick as using staples and it could it's already being sold to a pharmaceutical company and it's cool. being revolutionized it nice. could hopefully revolutionize sort of emergency services kind of uh, emergency yeah. health issues and i i laughed when i saw that because it reminded me of my father-in-law whose solution when he gets a wound is just to shove some soup glue in there so i thought oh now yeah. there's a medical oh, yeah. version How I, amazing. I, I, I won the argument once in the exact same way where i was sent to the emergency room because i was apparently in need of stitches and i came back saying no didn't need stitches, just needed glue. Just needed glue. <laughs> well, now there's a there's a more medically uh, approved version of that. Yeah, I think so. this was just something from a local hardware store. <laughs> well, super glue is is not what a surgical glue is. There's some <laughs> chemical similarities between some of the surgical glues and and super glue. Oh, some some They're not formulated. Oh. You, super glue yeah. is not medically approved, but you know. Yeah. Oh well, it sounds like valid a validated technique yeah. to deal mm. with your cuts. There we go. Anyway, so a massive congratulations to all the winners and everybody who was nominated for the Eureka Prize. This year, um, oh, Go Science in Australia. Yeah, that's good. And people can look them up. They're on the web. They're easy yes, to find. Yes, Australian Museum Eureka Prizes. Yes, they're easy to find. And uh, we're still waiting for them to deliver one to Einstein and Gogo, yeah. but uh, apparently the, the, the check from us is. Who's still longer? Wait, how long is Einstein and Gogo? Uh, they're longer, I think. Oh. You said 38 years, right? 28. 28. Oh, oh no, then screw it. That's us. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take that, Eureka Prizes. Well, we can Catch have up. the Einstein and Gogo Prizes next year. We maybe. should do Ooh. that. We should have. That's a good oh. idea. We should have that for our guests. Okay. Yeah, but Jesus, that would be hard to pick between them because all of them is mm. amazing guests. Anyway, we have to finish the show and hand over to the team from Edit. Thank you so much for listening to an hour of science on Triple R, folks. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll have a great chat again next week. We've got some really good guests uh, coming up over the next month. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. 